morning. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We're making a quick move through the gospel of Luke. And um, I encourage you from time to time to, in your daily devotions, in your time with God, to read a gospel, read one of the gospels. Um, I think it is so important for us to draw our hearts and minds back to Christ, to draw our hearts and minds back to the work that He has done. Um, and we are in the Gospel of Luke. I have to tell this, I was reminded of the story this morning I shared with my Sunday school class of the, the Christian in Africa that was sharing the Gospel with a, a man who was rather disgruntled and not in a good condition. And so he gave him a New Testament and he said, will you please take this and read this? He said, I tell you what I'm going to do with your New Testament. He said, I'm going to take the pages from this New Testament and I'm going to use them to roll my cigarettes. And the man said, well, I tell you what, you do that, but you promise me that you'll read that page before you smoke it. About 15 years later, the man was at a Christian conference, and guess who the special speaker was at that conference? It was the man that he'd given the New Testament to. And so he reconnected with him, and the man told, as he was speaking at that conference, he said, this man gave me the New Testament. He said, I smoked my way through Matthew. Smoked my way through Mark, smoked through Luke, but he said, when I got to John 3.16, I quit smoking and Jesus changed my life. So I'm glad for the power of the gospel. So I encourage you to take the time to go back from time to time and read those accounts. We're in the gospel of Luke, where Luke is writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. He is a God lover. Theophilus means God lover. He is a follower of Christ that has heard the accounts of Christ's life, and he's heard of Christ's ministry and his death and his resurrection. And Luke says, I have taken into, to write an account to put in order the things which we have heard from those eyewitnesses, those who actually saw this take place, firsthand accounts. And Luke has written concerning the virgin birth of Christ. He is telling us what is so unique. There are many religious leaders. There are many founders of religions. There are many great teachers. But what is it that is so special about Jesus? What is it about him that is different from all else? No one else in this world has ever been born of a virgin. And Jesus was that one. Jesus was unique. And, and then we've seen that there's no other person in this world that has lived a perfectly sinless life. Aren't you glad that our Savior is sinless? That He is the one who was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And then we come to a third thing that Luke will draw our attention to, and that is the vicarious death of Christ. I use that word particularly, vicarious. I'll explain it more in just a moment. But there's something special and unique. There are many people who have died. There are many people who have died on behalf of others, but there has never been one who died to take the punishment for our sins. The only person who's ever done that is Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me in verse 32. There were also two other male factors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. I love the power of simple words. I love those who can take great truth 
and put it very succinctly, just little words that have great power. I think about, for example, two little words that have changed many of your lives. Two little small words. I do. Any of y'all remember when you said those words? Did it change your life? Not gonna, we, won't, we won't take which direction we need to go with that, but two little words that are powerful. They're beyond their, they're beyond their size. I think about the sayings of various presidents and leaders through the years who have said simple phrases that really resonate and have had an impact beyond their, their short words. Some years ago, some of y'all may have actually been there to hear this president say that, uh, but he said, there is nothing to fear but fear itself. Anybody that <laughs> ask how many were that far back? But we still remember those words because that came at a time when there was great fear in our country. And he knew the power of fear, so he spoke those words. Words like, I have a dream. Brief, simple words that convey great truth. We could think about many others in recent times. I remember back on uh, 9-11, the two little words uh, that Todd Beamer spoke that became sort of a rallying cry for that time, let's roll. Simple words that convey great truth. And sometimes I hear things and I think, man, I wish I, wish I could have said that. I wish, I wish I'd have thought of that. I'm sort of like the, the young Native American boy who was um, out in the American Southwest and he was sending smoke signals to his girlfriend. He was sending messages of love. And somewhere across the horizon, they were testing the atomic bomb. And one day, a great big mushroom cloud went up. And he said, mm, I wish I'd have said that. <laughs> of all the eyewitness accounts... And Luke will give us a number of people who are there. Simon of Cyrene, the women of Jerusalem, acquaintances of Jesus, followers of Jesus, the Roman centurion, all those who are there to observe the crucifixion. And the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to condense this down into four simple words that convey powerful truth about the vicarious death of Christ. There they crucified him. We think about those words and what they tell us and what they communicate to us about the death of Christ. First of all, they tell us of the place of the crucifixion. There they crucified him. What is this place where he is crucified? Was this just some random spot? Was this just some... Jesus could have died anywhere. But yet in the plan and the foreknowledge of God, it was a very specific place where time and time again, God had pointed toward, this is the plan that I have for redemption. We could see it in its its place in the universe. Think about the size of this universe. It's beyond our comprehension. And every time those telescopes get a little further out, they see that it's bigger and it's bigger. But just in our, own, in our own galaxy, there are over 300 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. 300 billion stars. You walk out at night and you can see some of them. You can see the, the beauty of, of God's creation and the stars. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. The nearest of those stars, listen to this, is 25 trillion miles away. That's the nearest one of these 300 billion. 
Now, I, I, I don't know, I'm, my family and I, we're all from the country, but we would say that's a fur piece. I think I've traveled it a couple of times going home for Christmas. It seemed like it was about 25 trillion miles, but that's a long way off. That's the expanse, and that is one galaxy. And the Milky Way is just one of billions of galaxies. And yet, out of all of this expanse, one one small star, one medium-sized planet, one small, insignificant country in a portion of a continent, one city, one hill, the hill Mount Calvary, and that is where God chose for redemption to take place. That's the crucifixion. And Luke says, there they crucified him but not just its place in the universe, but also its place in history. You can go back to Genesis chapter 22. And God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son that I promised you, just in case you're not clear when I said your son, I want you to take Isaac. And I want you to take him to a place in a mountain, in the, uh, Mount Moriah. And I want you to take him there and you're going, to, you're going to sacrifice your son. And of course, you know the story. God provides a lamb in place of Isaac for that sacrifice. But the mountains of Moriah are the mountains and the range where the, the ridge of hills where the Calvary will take place. Later in the Old Testament, in First Chronicles, we'll read where David purchases a portion of one of these ridges and these hills, and it's a threshing floor. But because he needs a place to make a sacrifice, he purchases that piece of land. And that piece of land is a place where sacrifice is made and offerings are made to God. And it will become the spot where Solomon's temple will be built. And one of the ridges of that hill where Solomon's temple is built it runs to the place called Mount Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. And it is there where all those sacrifices that were made were looking forward to Christ and they were showing what was to come and they were pointing to the way and the manner and the plan that God would give for eternal life and for salvation where the sacrifice would take the place of the sinful. This place was no accident. This was God's divine plan. He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Christ taking our place. The place of crucifixion. But these words also tell us something else. It tells us about the people of the crucifixion. There, they crucified Him. Who was it that crucified Jesus? There's a lot of arguments and debates about this, and people will say, well, you're, you're being against this group, or you're being against that group. And some will say, well, it was the Jewish leaders that crucified him, and they thought they were manipulating. They thought they were in charge. They were going to manipulate the Romans into crucifying him. And the Romans thought they were in charge, and they thought that they were going to manipulate, and they were going to plan, and no one could do anything except by their authority. Judas thought he was in charge. He thought, some believe that he thought that he would force Jesus' hand into establishing his kingdom. And Judas thought he was manipulating things. The devil thought he was in charge. But you know, none of them crucified Jesus. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down myself and I will take it up again. It was the plan of God. But who are those that are represented there? Who are those who are, who are the ones that sent him to the cross? 
Every human being, every people group is represented there. Down in verse 38, he'll say that the words that were written above Jesus were written in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. Hebrew for the Jews, the, the, the language of the religious. The religious people put Jesus on the cross. And the Latin for the Romans, for the government and for the civic authority. And they are the ones that put Jesus on the cross. And the written in Greek for the philosophical and the intellectual. And they put Jesus on the cross. And every one of us was represented by the people that were people of the crucifixion. There, they crucified Him. If you want to be honest about it, we are included in that they. We crucified Jesus. But He laid down His life for us. The very people that crucified Him were the ones that He was dying in their place. There they crucified Him. We could also see in these four words the pain of the crucifixion. We've talked about in recent times, in recent weeks, about all that Jesus suffered on the cross. But think about the physical suffering that Jesus went through. Jesus experienced every kind of wound that's possible. He faced and experienced contusions that are caused by much striking and beating and there's bruising and Jesus experienced that as he was smitten by the Roman soldiers when they would blindfold him and say, if you're really a prophet, if you're the Messiah, tell us who hit you. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was smacked and struck and, and bludgeoned. He was lacerated. There was great tearing when the whip would lay across his back, the cat of nine tails, a whip with nine leather strips in it that would then have into those strips pieces of bone and metal and glass and anything sharp. And it would be laid across the back of the victim. And then as those things sunk in, it would be pulled back to rip the meat from the back. Sometimes even severing the spinal column of the victim. And that was laid upon Jesus. That is the suffering. That is what He suffered on our behalf. He took our place. He experienced the lacerations, the incisions, the sharp instrument, the, the th spear that was thrust into his side, and then the puncture, the pointed instruments, the thorns that are placed on his head. Every kind of possible pain and suffering Jesus went through, and that is simply a small part of the physical suffering, the spiritual suffering that he went through. He took upon himself our sins. Think about all the pain and the suffering and the anguish that sin has brought upon you. And then multiply that by the billions of people who have lived in this world. And Jesus took upon Himself our sin. That's the pain of the cross. Luke is reminding us of Jesus in our place. A substitute on our behalf. And then we come to the person of the crucifixion, there they crucified Him. It was Jesus who was crucified for us. That's what that word vicarious means. It means for one to experience something on behalf of someone else. Jesus experienced all that He went through on our behalf. He was our substitute. Just as the sacrifices in the Old Testament took the place and took the punishment of the sins of the people, Jesus 
was what they foreshadowed. Jesus is what they looked forward to. Jesus is what they told that God will provide Himself. God provided the Lamb, and God Himself was the Lamb that was provided. Jesus goes to the cross. The death of Christ is a death of substitution. He died in our place. John chapter 10 speaks of the good shepherd. John verse 10, 11 says, The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Aren't you glad we have a good shepherd? Aren't you glad? It doesn't just mean that the, the shepherd puts his life at risk for the sheep. He lays down his life. Jesus said, I lay it down. No man takes my life from me. There are those who will say, well, I, I don't know what, I want to believe in a substitution. I don't want to believe in that vicarious atonement. I believe Jesus was a good man and he died a martyr's death and, or he was, he was unjustly punished and or he went through some suffering, but I don't want to believe that Jesus substituted for me. It's some kind of cosmic child abuse. Let me tell you that this is not God punishing his son. This is his son, God, laying down his life to satisfy the rightful and wrathful justice of God against sin and taking upon Himself our sins. And if Jesus did not take our sins, then we will have to carry our sins. The Bible is very clear about this. A lot of people struggle with it. There's a great story of Martin Luther, the great reformer, reading the account from Genesis 22 and his family devotions. His family gathered around hearing him read the scriptures, tell the story, the account of Abraham taking Isaac. And they say that as he read this story, his wife Katie sat there and said, she was just astounded at this. She said, I, I don't believe God would do that to his son. And Luther said, but Katie, that's exactly what he did. He gave his son on our behalf. And Jesus willingly and graciously and voluntarily laid down his life on our behalf. And he did it. Listen, listen to what the scriptures say about this. Because you see, it's not theologians and it's not books and it's not writings and it's not theory and it's not opinion. What do the scriptures say about Jesus taking our place? Scriptures say that Christ came for the purpose of taking our sins on Himself. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. The Scriptures say that Christ was a substitute in being made sin for others. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He has made Him, God has made Him, Christ, to be sin for us, on our behalf, for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Being made a curse. He took the curse of sin on Himself, on our behalf, for us. That's substitution. That is vicarious. That is Him dying in our place and for us. He bore the sins of others in His body on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 Who His own self bore our sins in His body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. That's substitution. That's Christ. 
He suffered once to bear the sins of others. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. You see what the... That's, that's tr clear truth of Scripture. That He died on our behalf. He took our place. And then, of course, we could go to Isaiah chapter 53 and see the truth there. Surely He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. For He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The Bible is very clear. There's no question Jesus died in your place. Jesus died in my place. What does this mean for me? Beyond the astoundingly humbling truth that someone loved me so much that they would take my place. That they would take on them the wrath, the justice of God that is deserving of every one of us. The wages of sin is death. And Christ took death for us. What does that mean? What truth does that hold for us? I want to give you one word this morning that is clear throughout Scripture from this truth, and that is the word peace. Having, Colossians chapter 1, made peace by the blood of His cross. What is the peace that we have? Well, the Bible is clear about this as well. First of all, I do not have to fear the wrath of God. I, the, my past of sins are taken care of, and I am at peace with my past. What baggage are you carrying? What sins are you carrying? I want you to know that you can find peace at the cross. I want you to know that because Christ died for you, you can be at peace with God. There are two types of peace in the Bible. One is peace with God. The other is the peace of God. But here is speaking about the peace with God. I was the enemy of God. I was against God. I was sinful. But my sins have been atoned. My sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, His sacrificial death in my place. Because He took my place, because He went to the cross, because there they crucified Him, He was crucified in my place. And that is what I understand. I do not fear God's wrath. I am delivered from the wrath to come. Romans chapter 8, There is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad you're in Christ Jesus? Our sins are gone. A lot of people are carrying around that baggage, even those who have trusted Christ. And let me say to you this morning, you may carry the guilt of your past. The only place that you will find forgiveness, the only place that you will find freedom, the only place that you will find release from the sins of your past is in the person of Jesus Christ. To say, God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and I realize I can't save myself. 
but I believe not just that Christ died. I believe he died in my place and that he rose from the dead three days later and I am confessing him as my Lord and Savior. And when we say that, whatever words we may put it in, wherever we may be, wherever we may pray that prayer or cry that cry, then something amazing happens and our sins are taken away and the guilt is taken away and we are freed from condemnation because of Christ Jesus. It's the power of this death of Christ. I'm delivered from the past and I'm at peace with my past. So if you've trusted Christ, let me just say, quit carrying around your past. Some people seem to revel in what they were before they were saved. Some people are drugged down by what they were before they were saved. And I want you to know that you have been freed from that. That's in the past. People say, well, I, I know you say God's forgiven me, but I just don't think I can forgive myself. It's not your job to forgive yourself. Why, why would I think I, I can somehow do something God's already done? He's the one that has forgiven us. I'm not only at peace with my past, I have peace in the present because of this. I have peace now. I do not fear anything because of Christ. Now, we're going to fear something. If you don't fear God, you're going to fear something. You'll be fearful about something in your life. And I'm not talking about rational fears here. I'm not talking about things you should be concerned about. But I'm talking about a fear that controls us. And I'm freed from that. 1 John chapter 4 says that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. There's nothing in this world that I have to fear. I don't have to fear the direction of this world. I don't have to fear the way this world is going. There's, there's Christians who are carrying around unsettledness and despair because of the condition of this world. Let me tell you, it bothers me and I'm concerned and I hate to see what sin is doing and has done to this world, but I know the one who is provided and the one who is in control and the one who is in charge. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. Satan has no authority, no power over the child of God. We've been freed from that. So I don't have to go around in fear. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be problems that are going to make me anxious. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to be challenged by fear. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to be and have depression and face some of these challenges and these things that come into our lives. But it does mean that I have a source. I have a reason to have hope. I have a reason to be freed from fear. And the bondage. What is our victory? 1 John 5, 4 says, this is our victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And what is our faith? Our faith is in Christ, the one who took our place, the one who has conquered sin, the one who has conquered death, the one who has conquered the grave, the one who has conquered Satan. He is a defeated foe. And it happened where? At Calvary. It was at the cross that Satan was defeated. Satan's still rolling like a roaring lion, roaming about seeking whom he may devour. But I'm glad that I have a Savior who has already plucked the teeth from that lion. I'm glad that I am freed. I have peace. You see, I not only have peace of God, I have peace with God. And the Bible says that it is a peace that does what? It passes understanding. Do you know what that tells me? That tells me that there's going to be moments 
where I'm going to need unusual peace. When things are going well and everything's wonderful, I can be at peace, but that's not beyond understanding. You know, when you got the nice soft music playing and you're just relaxing and you're enjoying, your, things are peaceful and quiet, and that's not unusual. When things are going well in life and, and your bank account is balanced and you're, you've got good things going on and you're healthy and wealthy and wise and, and you're at peace, that's, that's nothing unusual. But it's only when we're going through the valley, when we're grieving, when we're carrying burdens, when we're dealing with these things, that we experience the peace that passes understanding. There was a pastor a couple of centuries ago that faced great challenges in his life, and he dealt with anxiety, and he dealt with depression, he dealt with emotional issues, and he said, I have come to embrace and love the wave that crashes me upon the rock that is Christ. What is our source? Where do we find our peace? Where do we get that peace that passes understanding? In the person of Jesus Christ who died for us. But then also, I've got peace for the future. I am not afraid of death. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not going to go out and do stupid stuff to test, to test this. I'm, I want to go in God's time, not my time. I'm not going to play on the railroad tracks or play in the traffic or jump out of airplanes without parachutes or, well, for that matter, jump out of airplanes with parachutes. I'm just not going to... I trust God. I just don't trust whoever packed that parachute. If you do that, fine. I'm glad. Hallelujah. I'll see you in heaven. So I'm not talking about tempting God, but I'm saying that fear holds no death. Why? Because Christ faced death for me. Hebrews chapter 2 says that he freed from the fear of death by dying. Those who their whole life were in bondage to the fear of death. Do you understand that the greatest thing that we have an aversion to, the greatest thing, our greatest impulse is to stay alive? The greatest fear is the fear of death? Well, apparently, right up there with speaking in public, but that's a whole other I guess if you died while you're speaking in public, that would really be fearful. But we have fear of death. And he says those who are in bondage their whole lives because they fear death, he has freed them from that. I am at peace about the future. I am at peace about the future between now and the end of my life. And I am at peace about the future beyond the end of my physical life. Why? Because death is no longer a dead end, it's a doorway. It is something that I will step through and I'll, on the other side will be the Savior who took my place and the Savior who died for me. And when I walk through that door, the first face that I'm going to see is that of my Savior. And so I'm at peace about that. I'm not in a hurry to go, but I'll guarantee you when my time comes to go, I can go with the grace and the peace of God that passes understanding to walk me through that doorway. And I can say, as D.L. Moody said a hundred and some odd years ago, he said, one day you will hear that D.L. Moody of Northfield, Massachusetts is dead, but don't you believe a word of it. I will then be more alive than I have ever been before. How could he say that? How could he know that? Because there is one who took the fear out of death when he died in our place. So what is the, what is, what's in this for us? Peace. This morning you may 
need to be at peace about the sins of your life. And you need to repent of those sins. You need to turn to Christ as your Savior. You can do that right where you are in the seat, right where you're sitting. You can come down in the invitation and talk with one of our pastors. You can, wherever you are, you can call on Jesus. And He will free you from your past and from your sins. Maybe this morning you've trusted Christ, but boy, you're going through a really stormy time. I want you to know that Jesus took our place so that we could experience peace that passes understanding. You know what that peace that passes understanding will do? It will keep, it will guard your hearts and minds through who? Christ Jesus. I want you to know that you can have the peace with God. You can experience the peace of God because our Savior took our place. As I was studying for this, I was reminded of a story about shortly after Abraham Lincoln was shot, killed. They were carrying his body on the train from Washington to Illinois. And as it passed through one of the cities, it would slow and the people would gather around to try to look and be able to see his, his casket, see his body as it passed. And they said as it passed through one of the cities, there was a lady there that had, um, had been a slave and had been freed because of the Emancipation Proclamation and the work of President Lincoln. And as the train passed, as the car passed, she picked up her young son and she held him up high up over, his, over her head. And she said, take a long look, honey. He died for you. If there's any one thing I can do this morning, it would be to lift the eyes of your soul up to the cross and up to Christ and say to you this morning, He died for you. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you that He died in our place. Father, I pray that there's those here this morning that are disturbed and troubled and searching and seeking, that they will find their peace in your cross. Speak to our hearts, we pray.